Well, brothers and sisters, I am so uh, thankful for this time of year. I think as we think about Christmas time, we have, I trust a lot of us, we have a lot of happy memories uh, of this season. But something that has struck me this year is that I am amazed, I'm amazed that the world still loves Christmas. I'm amazed that the world still loves Christmas. Now, the world can love Christmas for a lot of different reasons, of course. You know, my, who doesn't love presents and, and things? But I'm also amazed that how much of the world still celebrates Christmas and celebrates a, a little baby in a manger. Now, that same world doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord, so why do they still enjoy a baby in a manger? Well, perhaps it's because no one is offended by an infant. Uh, maybe King Herod would be an exception to that who tried to kill him, but nobody's offended by an infant, you know, baby Jesus, meek and mild, right? We like babies, we like infants, they're cute, they make us feel happy. They remind us of life. It's only when the adult Jesus opens his mouth that he becomes offensive to so many. See, Jesus came to proclaim the gospel. He came to be the gospel. And as Paul will say elsewhere, the gospel is folly to Gentiles. And it's a stumbling block to Jews. So I think so much of the world loves Christmas because it's a baby that's not opening its mouth and saying offensive things. It's only when the adult Jesus opens his mouth that the world takes offense. His message, total foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews because of the implications of what he says to the way of life that they knew. This gospel Jesus gave to his disciples, and the gospel is the focus of our study this morning as we come to Galatians. No other gospel. That's what I've titled this sermon this morning, Galatians, There is No Other Gospel. So we're going to look at the gospel. The gospel is at stake in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we conclude a year together, it's essential that we are reminded of what the true gospel is, lest we be offended by it, or lest we embrace a gospel that is indeed false and, as Paul will say, cursed. So we're going to look at Galatians as we walk, continue our walk through the Bible series this morning. As most of you know, we're preaching one message on each book of the Bible to give you the big idea of what each book is about. So that as you go back and study scripture for yourself, you have, a, you have kind of the big idea or framework of each book as you study. So this morning, the big idea is there's no other gospel. And Paul's going to define that gospel and defend that gospel in this letter to a church that's being tempted to follow false gospels that are being presented to it. So Galatians is a very important book in the canon of Scripture for understanding what the gospel is, as well as understanding the kinds of gospels that are false, but they they look really good or they sound really good. And then Paul's also going to show us how we should live in light of that gospel. So the first thing I want you to see this morning that Paul shows us, number one, there is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. And we see this argument in three places as Paul begins his letter. But before I give you those three, I want to say that there is no other gospel than Paul's gospel because Paul's gospel is Jesus' gospel. Let me say that again for you taking notes. Paul's big argument here is there is no other gospel than his gospel because his gospel is Jesus' gospel. And that's his argument. 
at the start of Galatians. So we see this in three places uh, specifically. Uh, Number one, in the introduction. Chapter one, verse one, in the greeting. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul is front-loading his argument by reminding them that his ministry, his apostleship, was not by man. It was not given through man, but his apostleship was given through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So his calling as an apostle is a divine calling. There wasn't just a group of guys who liked Paul and said, hey, Paul, you'd be a good minister. Now go, go preach this message that we approve of. Paul says, no, no. The gospel that I preach as an apostle is not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ. A second way we see this principle of no other gospel is what follows after this in verses 10 to 12. Excuse me. I want to say one other thing in 6 to 9 before we get to number 2. So this is still in the introduction. Uh, After Paul introduces himself as an apostle, he addresses the problem head on in verse 6. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, you will note that after a greeting, a typical greeting and blessing, he will give uh, thanksgiving. Paul, there's always a section on thanksgiving in Paul's letters, the things he's thankful for in the church. But in this instance, this is the only place in Paul's letter where there's no thanksgiving statement to a church. He goes right to the problem. This issue facing the churches of Galatia, which is Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, or Turkia, I guess we would say now, um, is so severe that Paul completely skips the Thanksgiving section and gets right to the heart of the problem. Look there at verse 6, where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Paul's using this word of curse or Anathema is the Greek language, or damned would be another English translation that's more to the point. Let him be cursed, let him be damned, let him be anathema, the one who preaches a gospel contrary to the one Paul says that I received through my apostleship, that's through Jesus Christ. So we see here Paul saying there aren't many gospels. There's only one gospel As Paul says in verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So here in this introduction, Paul shows us there's no other gospel, both through how he introduces himself as an apostle, how he continues his introduction and skipping the thanksgiving and getting right to the point. The gospel and the preservation of the gospel is mission critical and it's not something that we mess around with and notice that what is plaguing the church of galatia here is not an entirely different message like believe muhammad right or practice buddhism it's a distortion of the truth and the most dangerous doctrine is the doctrine that is close and then is twisted. A gospel that's part of it's true, but then it gets twisted and distorted. And Paul is so severe on this issue, and rightly so as an apostle, that he says anyone who is 
teaching this or troubling you with a false, twisted gospel, let him be accursed. So a second way we see this no other gospel principle in Galatians is in Paul's historic defense of the message. If you look on page four of your worship folder where I've given you a brief outline of this letter, you will see that from chapter one, verse 10 to chapter two, verse 14, Paul gives a defense of his gospel by outlining the history of his Conversion and apostleship, okay? And this is really important. And two really important things we see in this historical section is that in the first order, Paul's gospel was given by Christ. Paul's gospel, again, was given by Christ. He says in verse 10, For I am, now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And then going on to verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember Paul, who was struck on the road to Damascus, and who heard and saw Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's in this revelation that Paul is given the gospel. And now for, what is it, the fourth time? Paul reminds them that this is not man's gospel. I received my gospel from Jesus. But, of course, the false teachers coming are saying, Paul's message, he's just preaching a man-pleasing message. To kind of get ahead of myself a little bit, Paul's pleasing, uh, preaching a man-pleasing message to the Gentiles because he's saying they don't need to follow the law of Moses. But that's a fleshly gospel. That's a, a man-centered gospel. That's the charge against Paul. So Paul has to front load his own argument, reminding him, this isn't man's gospel. I was not appointed from men. I was not giving a message through men. I am not now seeking the approval of men. I will remind you that the gospel preached by me is not man's gospel. It was received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to remind them of his former life and how he was called. And then how for 14 years he was doing his ministry on his own. And what follows in this historical event is then uh, two different markers. One about after three years of introspection of what just happened to Paul, he goes into Arabia and Damascus. So he's in like Saudi, Saudi Arabia, modern day Saudi Arabia. Interestingly enough, that's probably where Mount Sinai was located because he'll talk about Sinai and Arabia in this letter. But at any rate, he's reflecting on the law. He's going back to the source where the law came from. And then after three years, he makes a brief trip to Jerusalem where he briefly meets with Cephas for 15 days, which is Peter, another name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. And then <clears throat> Paul says he also um, met James, the Lord's brother. So Jesus' brother, James, on that trip. And then he says after 14 years, which probably doesn't mean an additional 14 years, but 14 years from his conversion. Uh, but we won't get into that argument, but that's, uh, that's for another day. But then after 14 years, he says he goes up to Jerusalem, taking Barnabas and Titus, and he met with the apostles, and that they gave, he, tell, he told them the gospel he preached, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So what Paul is doing in this section, and I'll just say it in brief, is saying that the gospel I got wasn't given to me by the other apostles. It was given by Jesus, 
And only after a long time did I go and meet with the apostles. But when I did meet with them, they also approved my message. Okay? But his, his authority is not like how authority is conveyed through ordination today. Right? An elder is being ordained to the ministry. You know, other men lay their hands on the man and commission him to the ministry. But Paul's ordination as an apostle was not like that. It was not the apostles coming around firstly and saying, we believe you're called. It was Jesus calling Paul directly. And it was only after that did he meet with the apostles. And only long after that did he also share his gospel and they approved of his message as well. So we've seen now two places where there's no other gospel. There's a third way in this first point where we see there is no other gospel. And that's in Paul's confrontation with Peter himself. Paul's confrontation with Peter himself in chapter 2, verse 11 uh, and following. After all of this, Paul comes to the point that is rocking the churches in Asia Minor. And he says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul here is showing us that there's no other gospel because he's even willing to confront Cephas, that is Peter, and these Jews who are disrupting and destroying the unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Paul tells us here that before certain men came, that Peter would eat at the table with Gentiles. What we need to understand here that maybe it's not obvious for us at first glance are the food laws that were established to keep Jews pure. They both had to do with food laws that God instituted through the law of Moses, but also the oral law that the Pharisees and others added to the law that uh, didn't allow, for example, a Jew to come into a Gentile's home. It wouldn't allow a Jew to eat at the same table with a Gentile, in addition to being, not being able to eat things like pork. But Peter was eating with Gentiles. But then when this party came from James, whether that is meant to be Jesus' brother, whether James sent them or people are claiming they came from James, we don't know the whole context. When Peter saw these guys come that were looking very holy and proper, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. And the hypocrisy was so bad that even Barnabas, Paul's co-worker, was led astray. Paul says in verse 13, And the rest of the Jews, so now all the Jews in the Gentile churches acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. the behavior of even an apostle who was being led astray by false teachers, the circumcision party, was destroying the gospel and gospel unity in Galatia. So then Paul deals with it and he gives us the true gospel 
in chapter 2, verse 14 and following. Now, Paul gives us his dialogue with Peter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will ever be justified. Now, it's difficult to know here where the quotation mark ends because we don't have quotation marks in the original Greek. So in our English translations, you will see that Paul's, uh, the quotations for him end after chapter, or verse 14. But it's quite likely that Paul's dialogue with Peter continues here into verses 15 and 16. But that's not a huge point. Either way, the truth is the same in the debate that how are we justified before God that is made right with him? Is it through works of the law? No, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I'll just give you a brief overview of what follows after this, because we don't have a time to dig deeply into this section, but the kind of distortion of the gospel that's happening here, it's not an outright distortion like reject the gospel, reject Jesus and follow Judaism. Of course, there were people like that plaguing the church as well. But the distortion of the gospel here is much more sophisticated. Everyone in this group in this controversy believed that they were to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, to be justified. But then the question is, what do we do with the law of Moses? This thing that has separated us as Jews and kept us pure from the Gentiles, the Gentile sinners, all these years. Do we need to keep that as well to be justified? And that's where the false teachers are saying yes. So rather than faith equals justification, it's faith and keeping the law of Moses that equals justification. So it's faith plus something. And we could preach many sermons on all sorts of faith plus gospel distortions today. But the point here is that faith plus anything is a false gospel. If that plus anything is in the equation of how we are justified. There will be obligations on the justified people but they don't have to do with how we are justified with God. And Paul's going to treat this in this letter. Okay? Faith plus nothing equals justification. What then do we do with the law? And what, how then do we live? Well, that's going to be the remainder of this letter so we've seen in this first point that there is no other gospel. Okay, we saw it in the introduction, we saw in his historic defense, and we have seen it now in his confrontation with Peter. 
Let's look at the second big point then this morning. Justification by faith is the gospel promised in the Old Testament and confirmed in the New Testament. Justification by faith is the gospel promised in the Old Testament and confirmed in the New Testament. Paul's main argument in this section then, that in this next part of Galatians, is that the gospel was promised beforehand to Abraham. And it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then there's this big question mark, what then of the law that we're going to have to deal with? But the main way that Paul deals with this, defends the true gospel, is by showing how the gospel is promised in the life of Abraham. In the life of Abraham. So, I'll give you four ways he defends this from the life of Abraham. Number one, he shows that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. In this opening argument, beginning in chapter 3, he says, how did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And in verses 1 to 9, he evokes two critical Old Testament passages from the life of Abraham, Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 15.6. Genesis 12, 3 and 15, 6. He starts with 15, 6 when he says, Just as Abraham, now here's the gospel in Old Testament form. Just as Abraham, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Circumcision did not come first. The law of Moses did not come first. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul evokes the great Abrahamic promise from Genesis 12, 3. A little bit further down, and I'll read verse 7, and then we'll find it in verse 8. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and he's quoting Genesis 12, 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul defends justification in the Old Testament in a second way when he talks about the righteous shall live by faith. In chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, he talks about how all who seek to be justified by the law must fulfill all of it because cursed is the one who doesn't fulfill all the law. And in this section, he cites Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 21 and 27 and Habakkuk 2.4 and talks about how the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. But then he shows us how Christ redeemed And confirmed the gospel in the New Testament. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. A third way Paul defends justification from the Old Testament in the life of Abraham is that he says the law does not nullify the Abrahamic promise. The law does not nullify the Abrahamic promise. Look at verse is 15 all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. We won't, we're just going to look at this in brief. But the main point here comes... In verse 21, when he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he says, Certainly not. And he goes on to talk about how we were imprisoned under the law until Christ came. 
Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And look down at verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to promise. The big idea here that Paul is showing us is that the promise to Abraham came first, but then God gave the law of Moses. He gave the law of Moses to be a temporary guardian over God's people until Christ would come. He goes on to talk about how uh, an heir is like a slave until the heir reaches the age when he can receive the inheritance. And in the same way, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The last thing I want to show you here is in chapter 4, verses 8 to 31, we are taught that Jerusalem above is our mother. So Paul continues defending justification by faith in the life of Abraham. He's shown us in Abraham, he showed us the relationship of the law to Abraham. Then he goes to Abraham's mother. What's special about Abraham's mother? Remember that Abraham had children by two different women? Remember, Sarah was having trouble having a kid, conceiving. So she gave Abraham her concubine, or her, sorry, her, uh, her servant, Hagar. And Abraham had Ishmael through Hagar the son of the slave woman. But the son of promise came when God gave Sarah very late in her life the promised child. When she gave him Isaac. So Abraham's promised child is the, the child of the free woman, not the slave woman. And Paul uses this illustration to show, ironically, that the children of the slave woman are those that wish to continue practicing the law of Moses when it's been annulled. He's saying that those who wish to hold on to Mount Sinai and the law of Moses are the children of the slave woman and the earthly Jerusalem. But he says, we are the Jerusalem from above. Actually, the Jerusalem from above is our mother. He says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So if you want to be a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, you will seek justification through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now to the third major point then. How then should the justified live? How should the justified live? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The good news of the gospel. I think this is something that's often missed in the church today. Is that the gospel gives freedom. It's liberation. Now, most of us have no idea what slavery is like. Now, those in the Roman Empire 
would have a very good idea of what slavery is like. It was all around them. But what comes in Christ is that there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. That is, all of the socio-hierarchical levels of society have been leveled in Jesus. We all access the promise of God the same way, that is, through faith. We all become children of Abraham the same way, that is, through faith. And that gives freedom We are released from the slavery that was keeping the law of Moses. But then the question becomes, how then should we live if we are justified by faith alone? And in chapter 5, Paul deals with two lifestyle misunderstandings that flow from a false understanding of the gospel. Two lifestyle misunderstandings that flow from a misunderstanding of the gospel. The first is legalism. In chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, Paul deals with the issue of legalism. That is, in reinforcing the law of Moses as a law for Christians. That is, yes, we're justified by faith, but we need to continue to keep the law of Moses. So we need to continue to keep the Saturday Sabbath. We need to continue the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. We need to continue being separate from unclean people as the law of Moses tells us to. And you can see that all of these things become a threat to the gospel and to gospel unity. Because not only does it build unhealthy and destructive distinctions between fellow members of the body of Christ, but it also inhibits our ability to be salt and light in the world. Because if you need to continue being separate from sinners, how is the gospel going to be shared? How will it be shared? And to hold on to the law of Moses is folly. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision as the mark of true belonging, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. You've entirely missed the gospel. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. So if in any way, then or now, we try to keep the law of Moses as a means of being righteous before God, We are told by Paul that Christ then will be no advantage to you. That you are actually severed from Christ. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. The problem with legalism is that it's external. It's easy to put on the suit, the dress, put on the right things, or act a different way in public right, than in private. That's easy stuff. It's easy to boast in things like circumcision. Well, I'm circumcised. You're not. External stuff. Because it hides the heart. It hides the heart. As soon as the church starts putting an emphasis on the external things, how we dress, how we look in public, how great our ministry is, we miss the gospel entirely. It all becomes man-centered boasting. That is diametrically opposed to the gospel. And we saw through 1 and 2 Corinthians how big of an issue and how easy it is to boast in our flesh. All of that is legalism 
that will end up severing us from Jesus Christ. The law of Moses is no more for Christians. But then comes the question, now this is the second lifestyle misunderstanding. The first was legalism. The second lifestyle misunderstanding is licentiousness. Licentiousness. That is, living as if there's no law whatsoever. You know, the great fear, of course, we throw the law of Moses away. Well, then what's going to happen? We're going to live, how are, people are going to just be sinning left and right. And they're misunderstanding the life of the Spirit. But here, some, indeed, are then using their freedom as an opportunity to sin. Look at verse 5, 13. For you were called a freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is not annulling the moral law of God. And this can be confusing when we read Paul because he'll use the word law in a number of different ways. And that's why it's very helpful, the distinction that we have from church history of the different laws within the law of the Old Testament. We have the moral law, which is God's moral standard. That, as we saw in Romans, Paul said, is even written on the heart of every man, their conscience, Romans 2, 14 and following. That law is never, never revoked. And in fact, Paul here says the whole law, that law is fulfilled in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the ceremonial law, which is the whole sacrificial system, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that even more fully when we get to Hebrews. Moreover, the, the civil law that dealt with maintaining the people of Israel as a nation is also done away with. But then how should we live Paul gives us two big ways here that we'll say in this final point of how the justified should live. First, he says that we should crucify our passions with the fruit of the Spirit. Crucify our sinful passions with the fruit of the Spirit. And you can study chapter 5, verses 16 to 25 on that score. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 22 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this is where we were talking about faith in Jesus is justification, not faith plus works. But that doesn't mean that we're not called to do anything after we've been saved and justified. Because the gift of the Spirit that is received through faith bears fruit in us. Not as something that saves us, but something that is manifest that we have been saved. There's fruit. There's fruit. As Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruit. If the Spirit dwells in us through faith, there will be fruit that manifests itself. And Paul gives us that fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, such things there is no law. He says those that belong to Jesus, that is, who have received the Spirit through faith, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Indeed, that's something that's ongoing throughout our life. We continue to fight the fight of faith against our sinful flesh crucifying it on a daily basis by repentance and faith in Jesus. So Paul says the first way we 
the justified live is crucifying our passions with the fruit of the Spirit. The other way, the second and final way, is he says that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. We fulfill the law of Christ. So there is a law. It's the moral law. It's the law of Christ. And what does that law look like that we should follow? It's loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another. And in chapter 6, Paul concludes then, those who are justified will fulfill the law of Christ by carrying one another's burdens. And it's a beautiful way to end that the gospel is not something that dies after faith as a one-time thing you did when you were six. The gospel continues throughout our life to be the center of our church, the center of our homes, the center of our own lives, the joy of our heart. Because it is that gospel that gives us the spirit that then bears fruit in us as we live. So now as free people, as children of the free woman, we are free to love each other irregardless of the socioeconomic national racial boundaries that naturally separate us in this world. All of that stuff is leveled because we're one in Christ and we're free to love one another and carry one another's burdens. And that's what separates us from the world, doesn't it? Because the world doesn't operate that way. The world erects boundaries everywhere. But not in the gospel church. We fulfill the law of Christ as we love one another. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I mentioned at the beginning how the world loves baby Jesus because he doesn't say anything. It's when Jesus opens his mouth that he becomes offensive to so many. But just as Jesus used offensive words in his ministry, confronting false, the false doctrine of the Pharisees. So also Paul had to use offensive words confronting false doctrine. I want to conclude in a brief meditation on Paul's offensive love. Paul's offensive love. Look at the language that Paul uses in this letter. We didn't, I didn't read all of it, but I'll give you some examples. Talking about those distorting the gospel, let them be damned. Let them be anathema, cursed. That's strong language. In chapter 2, verse 4, just the mere fact that he accuses others of being false brothers, that's strong language. A third example, when he confronts even Peter himself saying his conduct was not in step with the gospel. That's strong, offensive language. When he tells the, the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, who's bewitched you? Whose spell are you under? I mean, that's offensive to hear. That's offensive language. Chapter 4, verse 16, have I become your enemy? Now he's using friend and enemy language? That's offensive. Chapter 5, verse 12. I wish that they would emasculate themselves, castrate themselves, a circumcision party. I mean, that's, that's strong language. The literal Greek is, I wish they would cut off themselves. In chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, he tells the Galatians, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. God knows what you do and what you're sowing. In chapter 6, verse 17, he concludes by saying, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's like, I've given you the gospel, now leave me alone. Don't cause me more trouble. And this is offensive language. 
How would that language go down in our cultural context here in Norway? Or in the West? How often do you hear people talking like that in Norwegian society? I would probably say almost never. I need some nods for my Norwegian brethren here. <laughs> almost never, right? Paul, Paul would be called a bully. What's that, Peter? Oh, you. <laughs> Wouldn't he? He'd be called an abuser in the church, for sure. What is the most offensive thing that we can do as Christians? It's proclaim the gospel that levels pride because the gospel removes all human boasting from the equation. Whether you're the nicest person in the room, the easiest to get along, or you're the smartest, most theologically sound person in the room, it levels all human boasting. The gospel by nature is offensive to the flesh. Because everything we want to boast in our, our heritage, our race, our gifts, our uh, affluence, whatever it might be, our skills, our talents are leveled. Confronting false gospels that feed pride is also offensive in the church and in the world. Our duty to confront false gospels will by nature offend because false gospels feed the flesh. They feed the flesh, don't they? Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Confronting conduct not in step with the gospel is also incredibly offensive to the flesh. And that's something we have to at times do with one another. Remember Paul told the Corinthians, God judges those outside. It's easy to critique unbelievers. But as soon as we start speaking the truth of the gospel and holding each other accountable, that becomes offensive to our flesh. Now, what's the greatest barrier to the gospel then in Scandinavia? What's the greatest barrier to the gospel in Scandinavia? I spoke uh, several years ago to a Norwegian church planter who told me that Yanta's law was the greatest threat to the gospel in Scandinavia, Jantelovin. I thought that was interesting. He said that Janta's law is the greatest threat to the gospel in Christ's church in Norway. So what is Jantelovin? So according to uh, Askel Sandamusa, there are ten laws or rules in the law of Yanta. One, you're not to think you are anything special. Two, you are not to think you are as good as we are. Three, you're not to think you are smarter than we are. Four, you're not to imagine yourself better than we are. Five, you're not to think you know more than we do. Six, you're not to think you are more important than we are. Seven, you're not to think you are good at anything. Eight, you're not to laugh at us. Nine, you're not to think anyone cares about you. Ten, you're not to think you can teach us anything. Now there, of course, is a grain of truth in these laws. And I also say, speaking to Deborah, this reminds us a lot of small-town America as well. And probably a lot of places in the world share similar kind of uh, unspoken rules. But it is certainly, at least according to this Norwegian church planner I spoke to seven years ago, one of the greatest threats, if not the greatest threat, to the gospel in Christ's church in Norway. Think about these things. If... The law is that you can't teach us anything. 
any kind of teaching then is labeled abusive or scandalous. How can any kind of, when Christian discipleship, literally the word discipleship is to learn, to come under discipline, if you can't teach me anything and I can't teach you anything, there's no room left for gospel and the gospel ministry. And we could look at all these other, a lot of these relate to one another, being special or good or smart or better or so on and so forth. Clearly there's a reality here that the gospel levels all boasting in being smarter or brighter or, or all these things. But when that levels it to a degree that you've been conditioned in Scandinavia to never give your thoughts or opinions because your thoughts or opinions are by de facto not any better than anyone else's. There's no room left for gospel proclamation or gospel confrontation or calling sin, sin or holding one another accountable. And then a whole host of things that the church is supposed to do as the body of Christ to build each other up towards maturity in him get labeled as bullying, abusive, sinful, wrong, hurtful, etc., etc. So now this is my challenge to you at Christmas time. As you're going to see a whole bunch of people in the coming days. And I hope that you have some gospel opportunities in them. Now notice Paul doesn't in every letter tell people to emasculate himself, themselves. Like There's some very strong language he uses specifically. But the call to tell one another the truth in love is a universal call to all Christians. And so my challenge to you, because we all live in this culture where Yanta's love is a real, in one level or another, subconscious or conscience is a reality in this culture. How can we wisely and winsomely yet faithfully be witnesses to the gospel in our families, in our church, in our, in our surrounding community, knowing that no matter how hard we try, the gospel will be offensive. And that if we've removed all offense of the gospel, then we are sub-biblical and sub-gospel, and we fall into the error, the error that Paul condemns in Galatians. So my challenge to us, both as a church and as we're gathered together and as we scatter, may we be faithful to the gospel, delighting in it. Hopefully we celebrate it together but also challenging one another if our conduct is not in step with the gospel. We are saved by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But the gospel also comes with the Spirit, right? Faith, justification comes with the gift of the Spirit, called to live a new life, with new obligations that will be the means of life to those who live under it. But it will be folly and a block of stumbling to many as well. But will we be faithful like Paul, even to his own hurt, to stand on the truth of the gospel? Or we yield and be anathema on the day of judgment? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, it is, a, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to have an opportunity called Christmas that is celebrated by the culture to have many opportunities, if we so avail ourselves of it, to share the true gospel, the reason Jesus came. Lord, our flesh hates conflict and confrontation. It's not fun or pleasant and it's certainly not valued by the society that we live in. But I pray that we would not fall under the ban of Paul, under the anathema, because we either don't share the gospel or we twist and distort the gospel so that others will be happy with it and with us in the telling of it. 
Lord, we're not to go out now and to be jerks and to just offend unnecessarily. That would be the wrong application of Galatians and of this sermon. But I pray that you would help each of us to wisely and winsomely, yet truthfully and faithfully share the gospel, defend the gospel, and enforce the gospel in our lives and as we have opportunity in the world. For that is why Jesus came. He came, and many did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The very people that were the people of the Messiah rejected him. So many rejected him. And yet all who did receive them from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God so that we would, like Abraham, be justified by faith. I pray that as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus in the days ahead, that we would celebrate the gospel that saves us by faith, that liberated us from slavery, the gospel that transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. I pray that the gospel would burn in our hearts, that we might share it and apply it and believe it in days ahead. In Christ we pray. Amen.